Today's bonus episode of the Chase Thomas podcast is presented by Blue Wire Pods. Uh, go check out the vast, awesome selection on the Blue Wire Podcast Network, bluewirepods.com. Uh, recommending today, Brownstown. For 20 seasons, the Cleveland Browns were the worst franchise in the NFL. Botched drafts, terrible performances, inept management, a lot of planets to align for a team to be that bad for that long. What exactly were the machinations in this factory of sadness. Host Andre Knott takes you inside the unbelievable and often hilarious story of how the Browns stayed bad while a city and fan base loved them anyways. Um, go check that out wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, also, Outsider.com. I joined Outsider and I'll be reminding you uh, about all that good stuff and the days and weeks that follow. But yeah, go check out Outsider.com today. If you have not already done so, you can find stuff like uh, John Knight, who sat down with uh, with Outsider this week to talk about the five songs that shaped the songwriter. So go check that out at Outsider.com. Um, also, yeah, Braves, we're, we're one game away tonight. Um, we'll see see what happens. We'll see what happens um, in Braves country, but, uh, whew, big day, big day, cloudy day in East Tennessee up here in Knoxville, but, um, big day. Nonetheless, uh, the Hawks are back. We'll see with uh, Trey versus Luca tonight, just all kinds of sports going on there. There's just too much. There's, there's a lot. I, I hate, um, I hate being uh, annoyed at how much I have to watch, but that that's just what it is. There's just a lot, a lot of content, a lot of stuff to watch, uh, a lot of good stuff. Um, Coastal going down to App State last night. Brutal, brutal. Shout out to Jamie Chadwell on the pod a week ago and then uh, going down here. So I, I apologize for putting a jinx on on the Shane Clears. Um, but yeah, great, great stuff. College football this weekend. You just had the college football pod and then Trevor Sikama of PFF last night. But today you're getting John Taylor fangraphs.com to go through uh, the what happened in the Braves and Dodgers last night and what's happened in the NLCS and the ALCS and his Boston Red Sox versus the Astros with them being on the rips 3-2 looking ahead to the World Series all that good stuff. And then we got Travis Miller of Hammer and Rails to go through what uh what happened with purdue how they beat iowa a week ago with wisconsin here this weekend purdue's ranked again for the first time in 14 years big deal david bell went off why is he why does he always go off against the iowa hawkeyes we dove into all of that all the different quarterbacks that jeff Brom likes throwing around in there and uh in in indiana so go go check that out um go check out him on rails.com if you have not already done so fangraphs.com uh all right uncle darren let's go Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, we are back on the Chase Thomas podcast. The Braves are one game away from winning the NLCS and advancing to the World Series edition of this podcast. John Taylor Fangraphs.com is here. John, good morning, sir. How are you? Good. I am not one game away from the World Series, <laughs> but man. Did not see this coming. It just—it's it, just funny, like uh, the insurance runs, people getting worried about that, and then you keep getting more. It took like seven or eight before Braves fans were like, "Okay, I think we're good." It, it's just funny, like how much they've been beaten down uh, over the years. That like we had to feel okay and to feel like okay, I can I can breathe a little bit. It took like nineteen Eddie Rosario hits and big time plays before Braves fans really settled down. The, the family group chat was all in and just. Uh, all surprised by what was going on by man um i don't know who had eddie rosario as the most important player in the nlcs before but uh i did not but i'm here for it john yeah nlcs mvp eddie rosario is going to be one of those impossible to answer trivia questions for everyone aside from braves fans mm-hmm. a la nlcs mvp marco scudero was he really yes who was that for the giants Yes, back in 2012 who was that for? You know, the ALCS MVP was that year? Oh. Delman Young. Delman Young. Let's remember some guys. Let's remember some guys with some controversial views about the Jewish people. Oh, I didn't. Need oh, God. Oh, God. Um, don't remember that. Uh, Shannon Stewart, 1998 ALC. I don't know. Um, well, let's talk about the Braves and the Dodgers first. Before we go into the somber edition of, of our conversation, John, before we get somber with uh, your Boston Red Sox, um, 
before the game last night, like you know it couldn't couldn't even pitch. He had shoulder inflammation, and you, they had a little snippet of uh, Snicker going over to check on him, and he was just like, "That's not happening. I can't do it." So they had to do a late scratch there. Jesse Savit Chavez comes in, does his job. They move but like the bullpen just putting out uh, just flame after flame. Like Tyler Matzik, is a dude. Love Tyler Matzik. Big Tyler Matzik guy. AJ Minter did his job. You just go up and down the list, and you're just like. I can't believe this happened. And then Julio Urias, he get, I mean, he didn't really implode. He just kept getting cut. Like he got, we kept paper cutting him and it's just the Dodgers offense never really, never really did anything. Um, but I, I don't know. This was, uh, this was great. Like I nine to two, um, they're up three, one. Uh, this is the exact same, uh, win loss situation as a year ago. Uh, <laughs> As I saw earlier, that uh, I was like, oh, I guess it was. Yeah, two, one, one. Okay. Um, but the difference is home field advantage. That's a, that's, a, I, I don't think we can understate that. Um, just with the Waffle House and the mall, shopping mall situation we've got going on at Truist Park. But yeah, I, uh, I feel really good. I, I think this is a different situation than a year ago. And the Braves making the World Series potentially without Ronald Acuna is, is pretty pretty bonkers and very, very Atlanta. Yeah, that feels right. And I, I, I too think this is a different situation, if only especially because of the way that game five is gonna is set up where the Dodgers have to go bullpen game because well, they just have to, and Atlanta has freed. So yeah, I mean this Atlanta clearly has the upper end. And even beyond that, I think this is just – this Dodgers team just doesn't look like the Dodgers. Um, it, it's really clear that between the injuries they've suffered, especially Max Muncy, which increasingly has the look of just a I, – I think there were there were two injuries – better said. Wow. Let me, let me just – let's go. Max Muncy and Clayton Kershaw, you lose them both. Those turned out to have been extremely destabilizing injuries. Uh, Three-man rotation is just not deep enough at this point for the Dodgers, especially considering the way that Dave Roberts insists on just barreling through his bullpen when he can. And losing Muncy in that lineup has very clearly completely destabilized it, just in terms of, I think we talked about this before, in terms of both the replacements the Dodgers have had to use and just the key piece it takes out of that lineup. I mean, even beyond that, we're just seeing the Dodgers don't really have the depth they used to. That bullpen is not particularly deep beyond the top three or four guys. The bench doesn't really have much to offer. And so when you have guys slumping or getting hurt, you know, there, there's just no real there's there's no real backup here. There's no real, you know, that this this does not feel like a 106 win team right now. And it's not really helped by by Dave Roberts doing stuff like I'm going to lose, use Julio Rios in relief in game two. Or just the consistent use of starters that has led to both Urias and Scherzer uh, struggling with what seems to be either dead arms or fatigue or some combination of the two. To the point where Urias just had to get left in yesterday despite very clearly having nothing on the great majority of his pitches just to wear it because the Dodgers bullpen has already been worn out and they have to get 27 outs today. So, no, this Dodgers team is in extreme disarray. I do not like their odds of winning three games in a row. Uh, the only caveat there is if they do manage to win today, obviously they have it lined up with Scherzer and Bueller, I believe, I imagine, would be the ones to go in game six and seven, and I don't think Atlanta wants any part of that necessarily. But those would also be home games for Atlanta. And, yeah, I, 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 it does really feel like they have the upper hand here. and they, they, They're the team that looks like the Dodgers. They're the team doing the Dodgers stuff. They have the depth. They they have the bullpen that is making it work. They're getting length out of their starters when they need to, and and honestly, you could argue that that Brian Snitker could probably stand to do more of that with a guy like Free is let him go six innings if he can. But yeah, I I I don't this I don't see this being a repeat of last year. Uh, this this definitely does feel like the better team is is up, and that does feel like Atlanta is legitimately the at least. I don't know, short series, but Atlanta's le- Atlanta is legitimately the best team right now in this series, and I have a really hard time seeing how the how the Dodgers are going to make this one, are going to turn this one around when they are just falling to pieces right now. How dare you? How dare you put this on? I don't know how the Dodgers will do it. I don't know how. It's, everything's coming up Atlanta. Everything looks good. Who whomst among us could foresee a situation where the Dodgers the Los Angeles Dodgers come back in this series. Who whomst among us, John? Don't don't do this. You know what it is? Here's what I'm gonna do. 
Dodgers, they should be able to. This looks great. The situation's perfect for them to strike. Um, you know, 189 I, I mean, combined. I, just, mm-hmm. I know what you're doing, but this this really is as bad a situation for the Dodgers as you mm-hmm. can imagine that they have to do a bullpen game here in Game 5 after using their bullpen yesterday. Well, the Braves thought the same thing. The Braves thought that yesterday. They did, but at the same time... I, I think there, if there is a difference here, it's that, or in part, it's that, one, the Dodgers lineup is in a really bad slump right now, and they've also just lost Justin Turner, although I don't think Turner was particularly helping matters anyway. It's just another body. It's another body. And the other issue is the Dodgers have to face Max Freed today, who has been pretty much unhittable throughout this postseason and is not someone like Urias who, you know, has that. The, the thing with Urias yesterday, I mean, it's a similar situation that you had the the Braves doing a bullpen game and the Dodgers throwing out ostensibly their best starter, one of their best starters. But it was really clear from the start Urias just was not there because of the, you know, whatever fatigue still left. It, it is wild that that game to relief appearance, Dave Roberts basically cost his team two games with that one move. Mm. Uh, a move that I, I know we didn't talk about it when it happened, obviously, because this, it happened uh, back on Monday or uh, Sunday, rather. One, I, I still don't get it. I still don't get it. I still don't get what he was trying to do there. I still don't understand using your your scheduled game four starter or whatever Rios was going to be in relief like that. It, it I, I feel the same way, and I, I, think, I imagine we'll get to it about Yavaldi for the Red Sox and the LCS. I, I do not. I fundamentally do not get why managers are doing this now. I don't understand how bullpens don't have enough reliable arms that you need to use your starters in relief now, too, which is not a thing that they should be doing at this point in the season. I, I really don't get that. I just I don't see how this Dodgers team has the tools or weapons at this point to get three more wins out of this group because they are just they're operating at like 75 percent and on fumes. It's really it really does feel like that giant series took pretty close to everything out of them. And. Yeah, I, I, I just I don't see how they win three straight games looking the way they do right now. Again, short series, things can change on a dime. But the Dodgers you saw the la- over the first four games, with the exception of Cody Bellinger's home run, just do not look like the kind of Dodgers who are going to pull off three straight wins against a team that is firing on every cylinder right now. Yeah, um, I don't know. It, like Nine for 47 for Mookie, Seager, and Trey Turner to this point. Um, I just... They're going to turn around, and Mookie's been been great, and Seager just has his traditional two-run two home run, and he, he loves doing stuff early in the game. But uh, Bellinger, they need Bellinger to, to have a big game, I think, tonight. I think they need the guys who they used to rely on to have big games. I, I don't know. Um, I think I feel really good at the moment, but we shall see. We shall see. Um, on the flip side, in the AL, John Taylor, your Boston Red Sox... It, it's not looking good. 3-2, um, no game tonight. What What's happened here? Why have the Why have the Astros taken a command of this series? Um, I mean, part of it, obviously, is just their offense woke up, which it was always going to do. That's a really good offense they have, one through seven. Even you know, even their eight, nine guys aren't... Well, Martin, Martin Maldonado's done nothing, but that's a really good lineup, and you can only keep it down for so long. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the the real swing was in Game 4, just the Astros' bullpen being able to hold the Red Sox off the scoreboard and then Framber Valdez being able to do the same in Game 5. I know it, it's, you know, people sound like, oh, the Red Sox offense has fallen into a slump. I mean, no one was getting hits off Framber Valdez last night. He was throwing 95-mile-an-hour bowling balls. That he, he had one of those starts that looked like a peak Zach Britton inning just over and over again. I don't know what you do with that. You just kind of... It's one of those you tip your hat and you say, you beat us. That's just that. Um, I think the bigger concern for the Red Sox at this point obviously has to, because the one, if they have one thing in their favor right now, it's that game six is going to be who even knows at this point. I I don't know what starter the Astros are going to roll out there. I imagine they're trying to figure out if they want to just use some combination of uh, Jose, sorry, of... um, yeah, Jose Urquidy or Jake Odorizzi or whatever it is they want to do. And presumably if they need to go to a game seven, they will just 
I, I mean, that, like I said, that that is if there's one benefit to the Red Sox is that the Astros can't throw out a fully rested Framber Valdez again or any kind of normally rested Framber Valdez. Everything from this point forward is going to have to be kind of ad hoc for them because they just don't really have the starters beyond Valdez to to put together any kind of coherent starting plan for the for the rest of the series or really any series going forward. Uh, obviously the issue is how do you keep this Houston lineup off the, off the scoreboard long enough, especially with two games at home where the atmosphere is going to be absolutely lunatic. I, I mean, I think the big thing with the Red Sox right now is just, what do you do? It, it really is that, how do you keep this, how do you keep this team from scoring, especially because your pitching plans are not ideal really either. It's, you know, you're going to have Yavaldi at some point, presumably in game seven, if it gets that far tomorrow would be Eduardo Rodriguez, who is seeing this lineup for a second time. Alex Cora, who is already someone who is hyper-aggressive in terms of the moves he makes and just the way he does them, it really is going to have to be very, like, it's going to have to be a perfectly executed pitching plan in games six and seven for the Red Sox to advance. There's nothing he can really do off about the lineup or the offense because there aren't any changes you can make, any bench players you can insert that I think are going to make any difference. The only thing I would consider is maybe you bench Hunter Renfro you put Kyle Schwarber back in the outfield and you start Bobby Dahlbeck at first base, which mm. I don't know how much that does for you offensively, especially because Dahlbeck has barely played since the season ended. Um, and while it does improve the defense at first base, which bless Kyle Schwarber's heart, but he is not a first baseman and has not particularly worked well out there. Uh, he is very clearly a defensive downgrade on Renfro, who is a fantastic outfielder. So, I don't really know. I don't think there is anything that Cora can do offensively. I think he just has to lean on the pitchers he has. And at this point, and I think if there's if there is a good thing about the way the last two games have played out, if you can call it that, it's that the best pitchers in Boston's bullpen are theoretically at least all ready to go. Cora should not be using anyone outside of his innermost circle of trust for the next two games. I think the problem there is who who constitutes that? You have Garrett Whitlock, who, at least based on the two innings he threw against Houston, does seem to be presumably tiring a bit. He is very clearly, um, this has been the longest season, I think, of his career, and it's an open question as to how much stamina he still has left. Beyond that, who who's carrying the important bullpen innings for the Red Sox right now? You know, in the division series, Nick Pavetta and Tanner Houck carried a lot of that load. Is Houck going to be a guy that you turn to in game six or seven? I, I find it strange he has not pitched since game one. And I imagine part of that is Cora doesn't want to deploy him as a one-inning reliever. He wants to use him for two, maybe three innings, uh, the same way the Braves use Drew Smiley. Or, you know, if there were a bullpen game, maybe that's how you do it. But at a certain point, I think with his stuff, like maybe he is a guy you just start need to start using in the eighth inning. Maybe it is a Hal Whitlock combo that gets you through the end of a game if you have a lead. And yeah, I, I mean, otherwise, I, I don't know what you do. I mean, if you want to point at the, the big problem that has hurt the Red Sox both in, in throughout the playoffs and especially as, as it turned out in game in game four, it's not having that reliable end of game bullpen presence beyond Whitlock. I know it was Whitlock who gave up the home run to Altuve. But ideally, you have that eighth inning guy, and the Red Sox have just not found it this year. Part of that is Matt Barnes uh, falling apart and Adam Adovino also struggling. Those two were obviously a big part of their late of their late game high leverage plan during the season and have just been absent almost completely during the postseason. I, I, I don't like it really. It really is just going to boil down to can the pitching keep Houston off the board long enough to give Red Sox bats a chance against what is going to be some really subpar pitching probably on the Astros part. Again, they're going to have to rely on guys like Urquidy and Odorizzi and Granke, presumably, and short-rested Valdez and whoever else they have available. I, I, I'm curious if Luis Garcia is part of that, given one, how badly he pitched in game two, and two, the fact that he left with an injury that didn't end up turning into he was removed from the roster, but um, we're not sure what's going on there, I suppose. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. There, I have not seen any pitching announcement plan from Dusty Baker as to who starts Game Six, right? I do not think so. No. Okay. So teams are just trying to get through Game Five. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like in a and which is its own weird thing about this postseason that every game now seems to be the wild card game, mm-hmm. where every team is just throwing every single thing they can at the wall to win, and then you figure out tomorrow, tomorrow. But. Regardless, the Red Sox do have that in their favor, that they should have the pitching advantage the next two games. The same way that I would imagine if the Dodgers win game 
game five, they have the pitching advantage in game, theoretically, at least in game six and seven. Problem, of course, is keeping Houston off the board until then. And I, I don't have a lot of faith in that. For as much as I love Eduardo Rodriguez and Nate Uvalde, the bullpen really is the problem here. There are just not enough reliable arms there unless you are just... I, I don't... I, I think... I think it is going to have to be you're going to have to use a guy like Tanner Houck more and you're just going to have to push for five innings a piece out of your starters and just try to piece the rest together from there. But otherwise, yeah, it, it's tough. I mean, I, I made the I made the analogy on Twitter that this Red Sox postseason run felt a lot like when Wiley Coyote runs off the edge of the cliff and keeps going, mm-hmm. just running on, on pure air. Mm-hmm. And that game four felt like the point where he looks down and realizes there's nothing underneath him and just starts plummeting. This this Red Sox postseason run has had a lot of feel of how are they doing this? This is a team that was great in the first half, an intermittent mess from that point forward, came into the postseason looking like crap, pulled off some great wins, upset the Rays, but the the vibe and then the, those those two wins over Houston were just enormous. But the vibe was always where is this coming from and where was it before? And I don't necessarily think this is the end of it. I don't know if this is the wave necessarily breaking and rolling back, but I, I think more it's more just Houston is a really, really good team, and that offense was not going to be quiet forever. And that the Red Sox also had the misfortune of running into... I, I mean, the frustrating thing about Game 4, even beyond the Laz Diaz stuff, which I, I just have no interest really in getting into, Laz Diaz is a terrible umpire. We all know this. He shouldn't be working playoff games, regardless of how many calls he misses or doesn't. Travis saw check on Twitter at a great thread about this. It's like if we're not going to do robot umps anytime soon, then we gotta we can't have the bottom tier umpires at the very least calling playoff games, critical no, playoff it's, games. It's ridiculous. It's I, like I said, I don't want to get. I just Laz Diaz should not be umpiring playoff games. Angel mm-hmm. Hernandez should not be umpiring playoff games. Joe West, well, he won't because he's retiring. But mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, I, I, I said something similar. It's like it's not about robot umpires because robot strike zones don't work yet. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a there's an article in the Athletic recently from Keith Law about Arizona Fall League, which has used the robot umpires strike zone and how it's been a disaster so far because that strike zone is not the same strike zone that regular umpires use, and hmm. it's just resulting in a it's a really tight strike zone, so it's resulting in a lot of walks. But you you just need to do better quality control on the umpires you have. Yeah, there, that it just it really is as simple as that. If you have guys like Laz Diaz who consistently grade out among the worst umpires in the majors, you don't let them work the playoffs. And I think to a certain degree, MLB might be a little spooked because they did have that lawsuit filed against them by Angel Hernandez over discrimination over discrimination allegations that Hernandez was being targeted unfairly because he was a, an umpire of color, which is of course absurd. Angel Hernandez would be an awful umpire if he were white, black, no matter what the hell he is. He's just a bad umpire. But wow, I sounded very much like we took we took the, the, the slightest detour right there into right wing talk radio for a second. Um, it's a fixture of this podcast. People have come to to expect that from you and I. But yeah, I, I just think that that point in game four when the bullpen, when the great all credit to the Astros bullpen and the relievers who, who pitched in that game, they stepped up huge and they they saved this. They saved the series and the season for Houston. I think it's also I think the 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 mental slash kind of emotional just weight of Boston punched Houston really hard in the mouth two games in a row and the Astros got right back up. That That is a lot to deal with. And that's that can shake a team, I think. And I imagine that the Red Sox are probably a little shook in that regard. But we'll see. They, they have bounced back throughout the season. Um, obviously, in the postseason under Alex Cora, they have been a very resilient team, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I would put, I'd say Houston is easily the favorite going forward. Obviously all they have to do is win one of the next two games at home where they should be heavily favored. So we'll see. But I, I mean, I think if the Red Sox are going to pull it off, it, it's going to have to, it's going to have to be Alex core makes the exact right pitching moves and the offense has to pick itself back up. And like I said, they, at the very least the odds are in the offense's favor because Houston's pitching is, is, there's no more Framber Valdez except for probably in Game Seven if they need him on for like an inning or two. Yeah, it's it's going to be wild. It's I think it's going to be wild. Hmm. But you know, we'll we'll see what happens. Now it's your time for clairvoyant John. John, how do you see the rest of the Braves Dodgers series going? The rest of the Red Sox Astros series going? 
And then with that, how do you see the World Series unfolding? We're so close to the John I mean, Taylor, think- Chase Thomas podcast, Major League Baseball World Series Bowl. We're so close. Like, We're what so were the close, odds? I, I do think we are going to get Astros Braves at this mm. point. And I truthfully don't know where to go with that series. I would lean like, Astros. I, I, I genuinely don't have a read on it because that's a really, it's a not a series. I don't, I don't you, I think you could easily go back to every single preseason prediction made by every single major uh, baseball website. And I don't think you would find a single Astros Braves pick. No, which is kind of weird because it's not an outlandish thing. Like no, the it's, two, it's two division, it's two division champions meet. Right. It's perfectly normal. And the Astros were a really good team and the Braves, even without Acuna, had a great second half and deserved to be here entirely. Yeah. It's just a very random matchup. And I, yeah, I, I'm 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 not really sure who I like in that. My my gut would say Houston, just because that lineup is impossible to keep down for any extended period of time. But Atlanta's lineup is no joke either. And if nothing else, the Braves definitely have the advantage in terms of starting pitching and being able to roll out Charlie Morton and Max Freed. And you know, even if you're only going to get three or four innings out of him, Ian Anderson, that's a hell of a lot better than Framber Valdez and etc. Um, yeah, I, I, I think Atlanta is in a much more stable position than Houston is. Cause I mean, that is one team where I know with the exception of the bullpen game, but even with the bullpen game, it just doesn't really seem like they're flailing around the edges. You know what I mean? Everything feels very in control with that team, even when they're in subpar situations, you don't get that same vibe. Like the Dodgers are putting out, like, this is like like they're trying desperately to keep everything from from disintegrating around them. The Braves feel is more just like, oh, that thing ain't working a bit, and just like wrap some duct tape around and go, that'll fix it. Hmm. That, the, the, vibe that the, the vibe the Braves give off right now is a very much just like, it'll it'll figure itself out. Yeah, I, I mean, know. it's I, just I mean, been a figure it, figure it out kind of season. Like the entire stuff. outfield, they figured it out as the season went on. The rotation, the the bullpen, just top to bottom, it's just we'll figure it out. Dansby Swanson at the one hole, sure. Back to the eight hole, sure. Like it's just all kinds of weird stuff across the board. They're just throwing stuff at the wall, and it's it's delightful. Yeah, and that's. I but I think it, as weird as this might sound, it feels like they're throwing stuff at a wall in a way that isn't frantic or panicked. Mm-hmm. But it feels just stable. And I think a lot of that is that the lineup is is a source of stability. And I think that the the Astros, perhaps more than any team still standing, have bullpens or the Astros, sorry, the Braves have a bullpen stability or at least hierarchy that makes everything a lot easier. You know, you, you don't see Brian Snitker really having to mix and match like that. He has his guys in Matzik, Jackson, Minter and Smith. And you could argue that that's not the best foursome still standing. No, you 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 certainly cannot because the group chat turned on Luke Jackson in a hurry. The family group chat but even even with Luke that Jackson. even with that home run to Bellinger, that wasn't Jackson's fault. That was a explain that to the group chat. If you want to be added to the Thomas family group chat, John Taylor, say no more, fam. I'll I'll add you, and you can try and persuade them. They're all out on Luke Jackson. I just. To me, it just felt like I mean that was a that was a fastball like four inches above the strike zone that Belcher mm-hmm. just put a perfect swing on. I don't I don't really I mean you can argue that you know maybe your pitch selection maybe if you're Jackson you want to waste like a, a breaking pitch outside or something mm-hmm. instead of challenging with velocity. But everyone's been beating Cody Bellinger with velocity all season and high velocity too. That's not a bad plan on Luke Jackson's part, and I don't even necessarily think it's bad execution. I just think that's Bellinger you know reaching back and touching 2019 Cody Bellinger for a moment and just making something happen but even beyond that like those guys Jackson included uh have been fantastic for them and I think it's just it does give it it just it feels like it provides some stability especially the, the thing to me is like the Red Sox have that similar vibe except without the bullpen stability that that Atlanta has where they have a relatively stable rotation of starters where you don't have to think about it too hard. And they have a lineup that you're not really making a lot of changes to because the guys have been doing the work all year. It's just a question of how are you, how are you deploying the players you have and where, and it feels like the Braves are in the steadiest place right now of 
being able to deploy those guys in the right situations at the right times. And Brian Snicker, it just feels like Brian Snicker has a very steady hand on the rudder right now. Like everything is just going, if not too. Well, he's made some bad choices. Let's let's be clear. He has he has done some stuff where I've been really really concerned. I mean, Ron Washington almost had a gigantic blunder that cost him the game two days ago. Um, where, I mean, he sent. This feels like forever ago now. Um, where he didn't send. Who was that on third? Now that he didn't send two days ago, and then they ended up batting Charlie Morton there. And then Charlie Morton strikes out, and they lucked out at the top of the order because yeah, Rosario I, got it and walked. The I think that the Morton move was really the Morton not pinch hitting for Morton was something that looked very very weird, both in the moment and then later. I think it it ended up working out in right. part because the length that Morton provided ended up being huge, um, with that bullpen game and not having to use more relievers, and also the fact that when they did use their relievers in game in game four, their good relievers, they didn't have to use them that long. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody really got burned in the process. So, yeah, I mean, th- I mean that then that's the thing. Like Snicker has not been perfect, certainly not. He has made some curious if not bad decisions, but I think for the most part he's not making I I I think the the contrast is when you see guys like Cora and Roberts who just seem to be pushing every single button in front of them, whereas Snicker does seem to have a more kind of relaxed, you know, I'll do it, but I'm not the like, I don't know how best to describe it, but the vibe the vibe of Cora and Roberts is very galaxy brain. I'm just going to do crazy stuff all the time, and sometimes it'll work out and sometimes it won't. Whereas Snicker just feels like a more, I'm going to play it more by the number, or not by numbers, more by the book. And if it works out, great. And if it doesn't work out, well, sometimes that's how it is. But you don't get that sense from Snicker of somebody desperately trying to... Just, just trying for the sake of trying. Essentially, he—I don't think he's going to be a guy who's going to do something like a "Here's Julio Urias in relief for no reason." Here's Martin Perez with the bases loaded in a one-run game. You know that—that that doesn't. Correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, obviously, I haven't paid that deep attention to every single thing the Braves have done this postseason. But he doesn't strike me as that level of Roberts or Cora, just hyper aggressive. You know, uh, wild tactics kind of guy. Hmm. John Taylor. That's all I've got right now. That's all I've got before before we see what happens here the rest of the way. Both of our teams might be in the World Series this time next week when we're recording again. That would be wild. That would be wild. Then we have to then we have to, then we have to do a bet or something. Well, I'm I'm here for it. We have a couple days to figure it out, but uh either way, I, I think the odds are good that at least one of our teams will be in the World Series, right? Feeling the odds are good. very strong, I would say. I don't. Who wants Dodgers Astros? Just the the unlikable bowl. With those Not two. just that, but I and like we can. Is that Grinky special? It, if it ends up being the case, but I I want out from the Dodgers Astros narrative. It's exhausting. No, it, it's 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 one of those narratives too that there's no there's no there's no solution to it. It's just mm. two fan bases yelling at each other, and everyone else has to sit there and listen to them yell at each other. It it is it is exhausting. I don't care. I do not care anymore that the Astros stole that World Series because it's it's become very clear past that point that that's just going to be that is just a thing that is that is now just part of Major League history and we all just need to suck it up and accept it at a certain point. No more screaming or yelling or cheater accusations are going to change a damn thing at this point. No. And yeah, the the thought of having to sit through a week of Astros discourse with <laughs> regards to the Dodgers again almost makes me not want to watch the World Series because I just don't want to deal with either of those fan bases and their endless, endless complaining about that. And this and because this is maybe this is not fair to Dodgers fans, but boy, you just won the World Series. And yet there is so much carping and complaining and whining. For God's sake, you just won. Sheesh. <laughs> That's what I'm just not. I want no part of that for the World Series. I want no part of the endless. They stole the World Series. They stole the World Series. And the Astros are saying, oh, cry, cry, cry. I don't want that. I don't want the Twitter World Series. That is entirely the Twitter World Series, and I have no interest in it. Mm. I think this is just turning into I don't want to be on Twitter, but that that that's a. Regardless, I the narrative behind Astros Dodgers is exhausted and tired and awful. And. I, I don't want to hear about it anymore. I just, I don't. I don't know how you feel, but I do not want to hear about it anymore. 
<clears throat> John Taylor, we can follow you on Twitter at yes. J.A. Taylor. I just talked about how much I hate Twitter. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, no one likes it. No one likes any of the social media. And it's also a Finch party out uh, out in the backyard right now as we're wrapping up here. Seven Finches. I don't know if that's a good sign for the Braves this Love evening. Love the Finches. Finches are they're going off on uh, another one. We have eight Finches. Blue Jay uh, in the distance. But uh, yeah. In the sports renaissance man backyard, it's it's lit here in East Tennessee. Good sign for the Braves tonight. Uh, John Taylor, thank you as always, my friend. And I will talk to you very soon. Adios. All right, we are back on the Chase Thomas podcast where I'm now joined by someone who has just spent his week just replaying bell highlight after bell highlight after bell highlight against the Iowa Hawkeyes wondering what it is about the Iowa Hawkeyes and that shade of black and gold that he just he just hates he he can't stand it every year he was put onto this planet to to make Hawkeyes uh Hawkeye fans miserable it's Travis Miller Travis good morning sir how are you I am good, and I'm glad that you recognize Iowa as our most hated rivals. And I know that's been a running gag between myself and our site and the Iowa sites for a couple of years right now. And it dates back to the first time the Big Ten added Nebraska, and we had that legends and leaders split. <laughs> we had the protected cross-rivalry across the two divisions. And the other five made sense. And then it was like Purdue and Iowa were left over, so we just did the – uh, all right, we're our most hated rivals now, so we we hate them. We can't stand them every year, and they put us now in the same division, so we we get to continue that going on. Yeah, I mean, David Bell took it more personally than anybody else, right? Like that is that is his bread and butter. He he's just like I, I hate Kirk Ferentz and this Iowa team. Like it's it's my job to ruin ruin their lives. Can can you blame it? He grew up on that rivalry. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> What like but is it not I, crazy I that he's that good against Iowa? Is it just bonkers? Uh I think it's honestly it's just they refuse to adjust to him. And mm. and he's not the only one. You look at the two games before that, in two thousand eighteen it was Terry Wright who I think had like hundred and sixty yards and three touchdowns. Seventeen, Anthony Mahungu had I think it was seven catches for hundred and twenty and two huge second half touchdowns. And for whatever reason, Brom just finds a receiver and he picks on him every play, and Iowa can't stop it. I mean, that that Mahungu one, there were like five straight plays he just kept throwing to him, and Iowa couldn't stop him until I think they put that Josh Jackson, the really, really, really good corner who ended up in the NFL for him. And they finally put him on Mahungu because they're like, okay, this guy's burning us every play, and we can't do anything about it. Not good. Not good. What What about David Bell makes him so hard to defend uh, out wide? Not just Iowa, but anyone in general. What makes him so elusive and so good? I think he's just, he's really polished. He's, I mean, we have Rondale Moore, and Rondale, I would say, was like the most explosive guy we had. He's the one, he could catch a three-yard out and take it 60 yards because of how explosive he was, but... Bell is just, he's polished, he runs crisp routes, he can cut, he knows how to get open, he can play the ball in the air so well, and he's great at getting over the top and getting behind the defense, and he's just, he's everything that you're looking for in a receiver, and he's got good size, he's a difficult matchup, and really, I mean, he's going to be going to the NFL, I've accepted that after this (laughs) season, but he's just so fun to watch because of what he can do, and he, he's just better than anybody covering him, really. Yeah, I mean, Purdue, like, it was weird to explain to people who weren't watching that. I'm like, with Moore and Bell, it was just kind of like the Purdue equivalent of Julio Jones and Calvin Ridley. Uh, with Ridley being um, Bell and then Moore being Julio. Especially because, like, Moore was a lot more physical than I think people knew. Um, that dude liked contact and like doing stuff with the ball in space and um not as he he was just more of the do-it-all especially like close like he said those three yard outs and stuff like that he would just turn into a much bigger thing similar to what Julio did at Bama and then especially what he did in the Falcons for years and years but uh Ridley being the more polished guy the over the top guy the deep threat speedy just very annoying to cover uh, over the top and pressuring defenses in different ways but 
yeah, I mean, Purdue, it's wide receiver you in Big Ten country. People forget that. Um, what happened versus Iowa? Like, if you had to explain to someone who did not catch the game, what happened? How did Purdue pull off the victory against Iowa last weekend? Uh, really? It's, we, we kept control of the football. We didn't turn it over because that's what Iowa had been doing. They were turning teams over left and right. They had 16 interceptions coming into the game, which is absurd for six games. But we get we kept control of football. We got a lead on them. We dared their offense to come back on us, and they could not do it. And then in the second half, we out Iowa Iowa. We, we kept control of football and just ran the clock, and we're like, okay, well, now we got a three-score lead. Come back on us. And I think with five minutes to go in the half, they had had the ball for five minutes of the previous 25 in the second half. And with a 17-point lead, that's game over against them. And it's just the same thing every year. Ferentz does not adjust to Purdue. He expects his defense to get the job done. And like the Iowa blogs have said, it's it's frustrating because they won't adjust. And Brom just coaches circles around him. It's a, it's a bizarre matchup. And even in the one loss that we had uh, to them in two years ago out there in Iowa City, Bill still had 190 yards and did whatever he wanted all day. Mm. <sighs> but, hey, it happened. And uh, I was only number two for, for one week. And your Purdue Boilermakers are now ranked. They're now ranked for the first time in, what, 14 years now? Is that is, is my math correct? Years. That's crazy. Yes, and... And they were only ranked one week at that time. They started the 2007 season 5-0 and against a bunch of, sh- a bunch of stiffs. Mm-hmm. I think the best win was over the worst Notre Dame team ever, the one that went 3-9. and mm-hmm. And uh, they, they got to 23. They hosted Ohio State. They lost to Ohio State and hadn't been back. So that's, that's the only week they had been ranked since 2005. And that so was Kurt Painter. In a 16-year stretch, really. Yeah. Kurt Painter, the father of basketball coach Matt Painter. People forget that. Yeah, amazing, since he's like 15 <laughs> years younger, too. It's stunning. <laughs> uh, leave the memories alone. Uh, that was a great team. Um, so, can it happen again? Can the way they played against Iowa... Because Wisconsin, they don't have the same horses on defense as Iowa does, but they're still a, a top 15 defense in college football. The offense has just been a mess with Graham Mertz, but the defense is going to be good. They're going to test Purdue. So you got this week. Can Purdue play the same way against Iowa that they will against uh, Wisconsin and get a victory? Do you, do you expect them to be able to pull this off in back-to-back weeks? I think they could. Um, Wisconsin, at least on paper, looks like a worse version of Iowa. Mm-hmm. I like that we're at home. But, again, this is Wisconsin. They've won 14 in a row against us. Mm. Um, we, we we have struggled with them. Most of those 14 haven't even been close. I think eight of them have been by 20 or more points. It's just been obscene. Um, I'm glad that Jonathan Taylor is gone. But he's playing for the Colts an hour down the road, and I'm still kind of wary of that. Like, they might call him back. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> fair. I, They're not having a great year either. I, he, he, had, I, he had, I think it was like the sixth most rushing yards in, in college football history and in only three years. I did the math uh, after the last game we played against him. I think a full one-eighth of his rushing total was against Purdue. Oh, I man. Mean, he just... He went off against us, so I'm glad he's gone. And he's not the only one. You know, Monty Ball it goes all the way back to Ron Dane. They just, you know, I, I see Wisconsin, and I'm like, great. What running back is going to go for 175 yards and three touchdowns? Wonderful. Well, they don't really have him this year. They don't have that guy. They have the Clemson transfer. But outside of that, they don't really have the dude who's going to go off against you guys. It's a good... It's just a weird year for Wisconsin. Just a just a weird mess uh, of a group. I uh, don't think we're going to get a better chance to end this streak. Yes. And I, I say that because three years ago we lost to him in triple overtime. And that was that was so frustrating because we, we score at the end of the second overtime. And obviously the third one you have to start going for two. We chose to kick the extra point. And I'm like, really? You've got this streak against Wisconsin. You need three yards, and you have Rondale Moore, and even better, Jonathan Taylor is safely on the sidelines. Mm. You 
he's not going to come in and play defense against you. He, I mean, and I knew as soon as we got to the third overtime, it was like the, he is going to score. We are not going to stop him. He's going to score and he's going to get the two point conversion. Why are we risking this? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's weird. Um, so when you look at the quarterback situation, cause that's the other interesting thing about Purdue, um, Jeff Brom, obviously being a quarterback whisperer and just the kind of work he's done, especially with that offense. But, uh, with O'Connell and Plummer going into the year, did you expect it to kind of go back and forth? Did you feel more comfortable with one more than the other? Are you comfortable with one now? What do, what do you make of the quarterback situation at Purdue the rest of the way? I mean, Brown has kind of done this his entire time there. The only time he had a locked-in starter was with David Blau in 2018, and a lot of that was because Elijah Sindelar, the guy that he was competing with, got hurt. And Blau really took the reins, and he was the guy the rest of that year. Mm -hmm. Then you go into 2019, Sindelar looked like he was the guy. I, I think he threw for something like 900 yards in the first two games. Then he got hurt, and that led to Plummer. And then Plummer got hurt. Mm. So by, by the end of the year, O'Connell was in pretty good. And he's made it a legitimate controversy for a while now. I know he got hurt last year, and that's why Plummer took back over. But uh, it, both of them are solid. I mean, Plummer does not throw the deep ball as well. But he has not thrown an interception this year, and he started four games. So, I mean, he takes care of the football, and he brings a little bit different of an element. And I think what was so strange is they ran the three-quarterback offense last week, and I'd never seen that. Uh, they, they On one drive, on Purdue's first touchdown drive, they played all three quarterbacks on three successive plays. With uh, And ironically, Burton is the running quarterback. Mm -hmm. he, I think he only has like six pass attempts on the season, but he's got a nice little pseudo-wildcat package. Plummer is kind of a hybrid. He's not a running quarterback, I would say, but he's mo more mobile than O'Connell. Mm -hmm. and, and then, ironically, O'Connell had his first ever rushing touchdown. <laughs> uh, the play where he just he took off right up the middle, he saw something, he used the umpire as a pick of the defender, and I mean, and that's one of the problems that he's had, really, is he's been a statue. He has been very hesitant to take off when he could get five or six yards pretty easily. And that was the one time he did it and he gets a touchdown. So, I mean, I don't know. I, at this point, I'm just like, whatever, if it works, fine. Play seven quarterbacks. If that's what works. As long as we win. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Robert Marv is not walking through that door. It seems like. Uh, he would, uh, he only had 17 years of eligibility, not 16. So <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, the rest of the way, how high can Brom take this group the rest of this season? How, when you look at the schedule going forward, what, what do you, what do you see is on the docket for the Purdue Boilermakers the rest of the way? I, I honestly thought there was a path to an eight or nine win season before the year started. Um, and you know, I thought we had a real chance to win at Iowa even after they got to number two, just because of what Brown has done against them and whatnot, I feel like we let the Minnesota game slip away. That was that was a game we really could have and maybe even should have won, but the, the red zone issues and finishing drives was significant. But if they figure that out, I mean, who really knows at this point? I mean, Nebraska, what are they going to do? They're, they're a pretty good offense. Their defense is eh, but they're a snake bit team, and I, I think it, I think what they've kind of said is, yeah, the offense will be great, and then they will just absolutely screw everything up three times a game, and their special teams will screw up. Will they kind of quit on their season here with without, you know, they they look at a very long path to a bowl game right now. What do we do against Michigan State? I mean, they looked like they were going to be terrible coming into the year, and now they're top ten and undefeated. I would be shocked if we won at Ohio State, but, you know, mostly because that game is at Ohio State. They're not coming to Ross Abe where, they, where their team's come to die. And then we finish the year with Northwestern and an Indiana team that, I mean, has Indiana underachieved? You don't know. They played four top ten teams, and they got two more on the schedule. So assuming they drop both of those, they're going to have six losses, but against six top ten teams. <laughs> what? So I don't know, man. I, I think this is a team that could win seven or eight games, but, I mean, it's a team that they could be going into the IU game sitting 
sitting on five wins, and you don't want to do that in a rivalry game because Indiana, I mean, I still think they're decent. And who knows, man? It, it's hard to say, and that's what makes this week's game against Wisconsin so so critical and so interesting because if you can end that streak, I mean, that to me, that's that could be a big factor, and it gives you a lot of confidence going into the last five games where, all right, we only need one now to get to a bowl. Okay, well, let's go do that, and then you're playing for a better bowl, which is that, – that's a big step forward from the last two years for this program. There you go. There you go. What can we check out from you and the good folks over at Hammer and Rails this week? Oh, we've got a lot going on. Uh, Casey and Andrew have been doing their – they usually do a twice-a-week podcast, talking to Purdue football, Purdue basketball. I know we're starting to ramp that up because the basketball team is ranked seventh in the nation. And quite personally, I'm terrified because of that <laughs> due to our inexplicable ability to have something go horribly wrong at the absolute worst time. So <laughs> – I know I'm in the minority of that, but that's always in my mind. Like, oh, God, what's going to happen now? Uh, And then I will have later today, I do a twice-weekly podcast with former Purdue running back Corey Sheets, our all-time touchdowns leader. And we kind of just talk about things and get his perspective as a former player, and it's a lot of fun. There you go. Go check that out. Great stuff, as always, hammerandrails.com. Thank you so much, man. This was great. Thank uh, Thank you for making the time. I greatly appreciate it. All right. Thank you for having me. All right. That'll do it for today's bonus episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. Uh, Go check out chasethomaspodcast.com today if you have not already done so. Access to all my previous episodes. Uh, Make sure you leave this show a five-star rating and a review if you are listening via Apple Podcasts. It helps more than you know. Uh, Make sure to subscribe to sportsrenaissanceman.substack.com. It's where all my sports writing is. So again, sportsrenaissanceman.substack.com. Send me an email. With any mailbag questions or any questions you have for me or any of the awesome guests who come on this very program, Chase Thomas Podcast at gmail.com. Again, Chase Thomas Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks again to Travis and John for coming on today's pod. Uh, another, like I said, bonus pod today. So we got uh, another one coming tomorrow, another one coming Saturday. And uh, yeah, all kinds of great stuff on the horizon. And uh, yeah, go Braves. Uncle Derek, how'd I do? Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.